Hello and welcome to Epoch's number 114. I'm joined by a returning guest, Rupert August. Rupert, how are you? Doing very well. Thanks for, thanks for having me on again. Sorry yeah. it's been so long. Yeah, no, not a problem. Happy to have you on. Last time we talked about the Stuart Restoration, that is uh, the English uh, monarchs coming back after uh, Oliver Cromwell's interregnum. This time we're going to talk about the Bourbon Restoration, which is uh, the French monarchs coming back after after that little episode of uh, Napoleon Bonaparte. Yeah, the uh, the great kerfuffle. <laughs> yeah, the great Gallic kerfuffle. Um, so first thing I wanted to ask you then, because um, I'll sort of let you take the reins on this one. You're much more of an expert on it. I must admit, there's, you know, no one can know all of history inside out. And uh, the Bourbon Restoration, although I know the main players and the main events and things, I don't know it in fantastic detail. So I am looking to learn a few things here today myself. Um, I wondered, though, how far you wanted to take it. I guess we're going to talk about Louis the Eighteenth. Um, did you want to go into also Charles the Tenth, and you know beyond that? Um, how far? How much did you want? How far did you want to go with it? We'll definitely touch on uh, the monarchs themselves, um, but there's a particular interest that I have in this period, um, which is the the dynamic of a group called the Knights of the Faith, which I think are chronically understudied. Um, but are uh, definitely quite interesting to sort of understanding this whole period, uh, and I think there's there's sort of certain lessons to to sort of draw out of that for any uh, any any groups who might consider themselves to be in a, sim- uh, a similar predicament. Um, and they're kind of like one of the main driving forces that I see that is keeping the rest the Bourbon Restoration on the sort of straight and narrow, as it were, uh, and their eventual destruction and disbanding really basically presages the. Uh, the undermining of the Bourbon Restoration as a whole. So they're, they're who I'm going to mainly want to be focusing on. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll let you go then. I suppose one of the, I suppose the obvious place to start perhaps is um, the fall of Bonaparte, at least the first time, uh, because Louis XVIII, the, the, the king, the returning Bourbon king, um, sort of has two bites of the cherry, so to speak, doesn't he? he? Comes back, but then Napoleon has his famous one hundred days, his sort of return from Elba and uh, a swan song of a hundred yes. days for Napoleon, and which after that Louis the Eighteenth comes back again, i.e., for the second time. Um, so I'll, I'll let you pick it up wherever you think is best, or or however you think's best. Well, I think it's probably sensible to start a little bit earlier than that because okay, sure. again, this group, the uh, probably butch- butchering the French, but the Chevalier de la Foi. Um, they actually start off a little bit earlier than that. Uh, the the man who founded them himself, one uh, Ferdinand de Bertier de Sauvigny, he was actually the son of a um, an, uh, an attendant, uh, quite close um, pers- um, personal attendant, I believe, to uh, Louis the Sixteenth, who was murdered during the earlier stages of the revolution in uh, seventeen eighty nine. Um, and I imagine that left quite the quite the imprint, as it did on many of the figures. So. One thing that's quite interesting that you see about the reaction to the French, like the, the, the counter-revolutionary attempts, is a lot of the people actually have some kind of like personal relationship to either Louis the Sixteenth or the the starting out events. So some of the famous figures um, in the, especially the, the noblemen in the Vendée, the famous war in the Vendée, a lot of those guys had actually originally fought to defend, uh, think you know, like the. Um, the palaces and defend the the royal person and uh, you know taken part in the tried in the attempt to defend against the mob, uh, and so when they are um, basically you know sent home, then their their personal connection to the king doesn't doesn't waver, and they just see to see what sort of uh, 
well, you know, from the re- revolutionary perspective, what trouble they can cause out, out on the peripheries. There's another thing that's worth covering beforehand, though, that's quite interesting to get a sort of like a fuller picture of what the right was doing during this period. Um, and I only sort of discovered this recently, but the the original movements that were actually meant to be bolstering the support of the king uh, were were much more in traditionally monarchist areas. Um, because funnily enough, the, the Vendée was not known as somewhere that was uh, particularly, um, I don't know, loyal to the king and the the, the French uh, central project. Because uh, I think it had been one of the main uh, strongholds of uh, Protestantism and uh, and sort of like the, the Huguenot movement during the French Wars of Religion. So the the place where a lot of this was supposed to be set up and where it initially was set up was actually down in the southeast. Uh, around sort of Provence and the uh, sort of Rhone area up as far as uh, Lyon. And Lyon did become an important centre of the counter-reformation, uh, not the counter-reformation, the counter, counter-revolution later. Um, but even before that, at the very outset, when you get all of the uh, noble emigres who are sort of like leaving in the first wave, quite a lot of them do go on to uh, the Kingdom of Piedmont, Sardinia. Mm. And they are based out of Turin to try and uh, you know, reestablish the king's power, uh, and I believe they're even headed by the future t- Charles the Tenth. Even at that time, mm. I believed it was one of the early ones that went into um, into exile as the uh, Count of Artois. I believe mm-hmm. he was still at the time. Um, so that movement was initially set up, and they were they were trying to network with people on the ground, try and build up a local base of support that would actually um, you know rise up and then declare a, a kind of regional secession to try to essentially reconquer France. Um, but because the events of, you know, the events in Paris sort of got, got away from uh, a lot of the people, you know, got, got away from the king in particular, um, he was actually forced into a position where he had his loyalists out on the peripheries um, advocating against his own policies because his own policies were being sort of forced through at the point of a bayonet. And when you yeah, speak the of the king at this point, you're talking about Louis the Sixteenth, right? This is still Louis the Sixteenth, okay. yeah. But when he's being essentially, uh, you know, held hostage by the the revolutionaries. Okay. Um, and so this was what was initially meant to be the uh, the main thrust of like the the, the actual proper sponsored uh, royalist movement in France. Um, but it splinters and on the on the ground. It also splinters due to. Um, Sort of like divisions that are still extant between you know, Huguenot groups like Protestants and uh, Catholics, and so a lot of the uh, the rival, like local rivalries on the ground end up uh, sort of fizzling up. But even more than that, the king himself is eventually forced to basically demand that they stand down. So a lot of them, a lot of them do on the basis of that, uh, and then further than that, because some of them are still so dedicated to his cause that they're willing to sort of go against his own word in order to try and see his prerogatives and mandates upheld. Uh, they, they continue to try to organize, but um, he basically demands that the government in Turin crack down on them and, and interrupt what they're doing. And so they are forced to, to relocate. And that's kind of when you see the second uh, movement of the uh, of the emigres and they sort of get splintered off even more. A lot of them lose heart at that point and, and they end up just sort of going and taking part in, uh, hmm. in other things and just sort of treat themselves, treat their exile as a little bit more permanent. But that's when you get that, that's when you get the the emigre army up with um, uh, up in Germany, sort of more being formed. But that's ca- caught off guard later on. But sorry, what were you going to say? I was just going to say it is an interesting thing to note, isn't it? In the in the, the grander sweep of the story of the French Revolution, that sometimes people think, oh, a, a, a mob rose up in Paris and perhaps uh, marched on Versailles, and that was sort of it. 
the government fell. There weren't sort of, the, the royalists didn't put up a fight, but of course it was quite a bitter fight all over the place. Um, and a lot of them fled into exile, as, as you mentioned, in sort of yeah. Piedmont and places, all sorts of places. And a lot of them, I think it often is the case, isn't it, um, with sort of reactionary politics, that isn't really the right term, but well, they become, I think what you're about to start explaining the story of um, sort of ultra royalists, right? A, a, faction, yeah. a, a faction of politics, which is more royalists than the actual, than the actual monarch themselves, in, in yeah, a way. This comes back in in a very big way in uh, Louis the, in the form of Louis the Eighteenth, but we'll, we'll sort of get to that soon. Sure. The other funny thing is that though, um, at various points, so the, the the royalist movement sort of goes in a lot of different directions at this time, mm. and I think mm. it's part of this uh, this sort of general general tendency and this experience that that sort of shapes the later royalist disposition because you you do get schisms later on as to how. Uh, how it should be handled at the uh, you know at a tactical or even a strategic level. You know how should you how should you be trying to get behind uh, the idea of royalism potentially in the face of the king? And I think that's uh, this is a very informative experience. Um, this this sort of like earlier stage down in Piedmont. It's interesting, isn't it? And I know that you mentioned Leon there. Just one thing I would say I, I've quite, always quite find fairly interesting is that a lot of the revolutionaries, the you know the the revolutionary governments in Paris, did have to send out sort of small armies to <laughs> to like butcher lots of royalists, lots of towns that were effectively declared themselves to be royalist. I think in Lyon, the, the revolutionaries had to kill lots and lots and lots of people in Lyon, yeah. um, like to herd them into barns and set the barns alight and all sorts of frightfulness like that. Um, so it's not like the, the royalist feeling in France just sort of disappeared. It didn't, did it? Not at all. No, I mean, it, it. You can go as far as to say that it was the dominating feeling for, uh, you know, practically the entire period up to. I mean, you could potentially go as far as the eighteen seventies or eighties, and that royalism is still the sort of dominant sentiment, but it just never quite has the same. Uh, well, you know, they're they're basically a bunch of roadblo uh, roadblocks in the way or, or bumps in the road that uh, end up de derailing it to the extent that it can never. Uh, reassert itself properly, but they face the, the problem early on, especially of uh, organization. Because what what do you do if you're a revolutionary group that is not at all used to being a revolutionary group? You hmm. don't have any of the skills built up for doing things like evading, um, you know, police, especially secret police uh, capture and uh, disruption. You, you're used to being in charge, and you're used to trying to maintain authority and order rather than trying to, well, subvert it essentially. Mm, mm, it's a good point. One last thing. One last thing. I'd just like to note on that. I, th I think it's a very good point you've made that it lasted past the um, eighteen forty eight great year of revolution because Napoleon the Third was, you know, voted president, but then sort of quite quickly just declared himself emperor <laughs> and yeah. uh, you know ruled for ages. What, like seventeen odd years, something like that. So, uh, just a point is again a very broad point. I think. Um, is that even though we've got this idea that the French are sort of staunch anti-monarchists, um, it died hard, <laughs> didn't it? It died quite hard in the French heart. Uh, they were prepared to, um, well, they were, or rather, they weren't prepared to give up their monarchy all that easily. I think that's an understatement. <laughs> yeah, well, 
the third the third French Republic was actually founded. So after the Franco-Prussian War, it was founded by monarchists, incredibly reluctantly. Right. right. Yeah. Another great point. Another great point. So I'll let you carry on with the the days of or the last days of Louis the Sixteenth. Well, um, yeah. So th- this experience is is quite. Uh, it's quite informative, I would say, to later later history. And where this, where, where I would pick this thread back up is uh, over in 1807. So you have some figures like uh, de Sauvigny serving w- alongside the emigres and still sort of keeping up the the banner, even though they've been, you know, essentially chased across Europe at, at various points. So you, you get some of the, um, so I believe it was the victory at Valmy, uh, which sort of like crushed the original uh, impetus to reimpose the monarchy by force. Um, and that's the that's when the the revolutionary spirit kind of becomes a lot more martial, and it gets a a, a, uh, a fire lit under it, which you know keeps burning keeps burning for quite a long time, and all across Europe, obviously. But figures like de Sauvigny, in particular, uh, try to think about how they can better usurp. Um, you know, better basically do to the new revolutionary government by this point under Napoleon what the revolutionaries have done to them. Um, and so one thing that the, uh, you know, it's, tre- it's treated as a bit ridiculous now, uh, just sort of like an obsession that, w- that had no, no real basis in truth. But there was a, a wide scale, uh, like a widespread belief among the emigres that essentially it was all just down to Masons. Um, and that there, there was just sort of like a, you know, a cadre of, um, Groups like Freemasons and uh, some others, possibly Jesuits. I can't remember whether they were whether, whether they were supposed to supposed supposed to have been involved um, or not. I don't think so, but yeah, the, the Masons were the big one, basically, and it, it was essentially just a conspiracy from from inside, more or less. What was um, the, the revolution or the, the, revolution or the Napoleonic itself, yeah. era? Well, yeah, I mean, both it both right, in a way, but it primarily doesn't make the sense, like you say. Yeah. <laughs> um. And then, essentially, from this conclusion, the uh, uh, Sauvigny and his brother, uh, and I, I think a few others, basically set out to try to, you know, accepting that as the case, how do we reverse the revolution? Well, we do it by recreating the, the Masons, but for our purposes. So what they do is that they, in the name of Christendom in particular, because this is, um, this is after Napoleon is, is uh, excommunicated uh, and you know, a lot of the, uh, you know, the Catholic and Royal Army is the is the, like the main Vendée army. So, so Catholicism is one of the main impetuses here. But alongside um, restoring things back to their sort of uh, their, their proper place in uh, 1789, they decide that they're going to form a Masonic type group with that express purpose in mind, basically, like an anti an anti Mason uh, anti Masonry. Okay. So what they do initially is they actually infiltrate the Masons itself. They figure out the structure. They they work out how, how it all works at a at a sort of like institutional level, and then they straightforwardly just copy it. They they just re- recreate their own their own group called the um, Chevalier de la Foi that I mentioned, the, the Knights of the Faith, and they use it as a an, an well they use it as a vector basically to try to for one thing network up all of the different pro royalist forces, especially in terms of the aristocrats. So they're trying to Particularly select for people with you know some means and some influence, and then gather all those people together into a single organization that can be guided into you know in the direction of the restoration of the Bourbons. And this takes place over the course of 
uh, I think it's supposed to have been officially founded in something like 1810. Um, and then it, it continues through basically through to 1826 essentially but we'll we'll sort of we'll sort of get back to that but in it, in its sort of like more revolutionary form it obviously continues through to about uh 1815 1816 when the uh the Bourbon restoration starts in earnest there's one thing i want to ask there you mentioned that sort of starting in about uh, 1807 or, or 1810 something like that um in that period that's when napoleon uh, arguably is sort of towards the the very top of his career, you know, sort of the great year of 1805, he's had that, but the disasters of Russia in 1812 hasn't happened and Spain hasn't gone completely awry yet. Well, it's in about 1810, isn't it? It starts to go terribly wrong in Spain. So yeah. between 1807, 1810, um, so, I can only imagine this group and all the uh, the emigres and the exiled Bourbons, they sort of must be at their, psychologically, I suppose, at their lowest ebb. I mean, aren't a lot of them, isn't the later Louis XVIII and, and his brother, uh, the Comte d'Artois, aren't they a lot of them in America? Um, either way, either way, though, it just looks like that Bonaparte is riding high. He's kind of invincible on some level. He's not going anywhere soon. Yes, this, this actually influences their strategy quite significantly um, because one other thing that's quite vital is that I believe by this point, the um, the uprisings on the Vendée have have basically calmed down. They've been more or less subdued. Um, and although that that is not completely um, not completely the case, there are still a lot of those uh, sort of simmering resentments. The uh, the sort of worst of it when it when it was threatening to overtake whole regions of France is is sort of somewhat past. And so anybody who is kind of looking at uh, a potential Bourbon restoration uh, has to take a different kind of vector, and so the way that they, the way that they do this is through, again, basically just sort of networking everyone up, getting everyone communicating, getting everyone on the same page, organizing a structure of, um, you know, communication, organization, direction, quite importantly, uh, and making sure that they have some kind of like coherent organization that they can uh, govern somewhat nationwide, and that, that's basically what they focus on at the start. Um, as you as you were saying, um, Napoleon is riding high for quite a long time, and what that means is that for its early stages, uh, the the knights basically just develop the organisation and get everyone get everyone talking, and not not really that much else. All that all they really want to do at that point is to try and build build a kind of grassroots support to mm. not only get everyone connected up, but but also to try to you know proselytize royalism at a very low level, and that's one of the interesting things about the. Um, the knights actually is that at the very lowest level, um, and, and this is much like how the Masons uh, are supposed to operate, um, at the very lowest level, you would not actually know that you're involved in a revolutionary organization. You were, you were basically just uh, taking part in a, in a Catholic charity group, uh, which has some elements of nostalgia for the, uh, for the sort of like, uh, you know, the royalist era that's now passed. But that's all it was. If you demonstrated um, either you know competence or interest, then you would be brought in gradually into higher and higher levels where you kind of get more of an understanding about what the group is actually doing. But it's not until you get into the, um, you know, potentially even the highest levels of leadership that you have any idea that the actual goal of the organization itself is the overthrow of the Napoleonic government and the revolutionary government and to try to revert things back to 1789. 
I feel like there's some parallels there in some perverse way with the, the Church of Scientology. But another thing, you where you talked about where their first goal or among their first goals was just to get people talking, get lines of communications between people. Do you know what sprung to mind was um, the committees of correspondence in the American Revolution, that first and foremost, we just needed these disparate states, uh, these disparate and often physically far flung from each other groups of people to sort of be on one page and to start communicating with each other sort of that's the first step um, it is yeah and it has a it has a very powerful effect actually even if it's um mm, mm. even if it's not immediately something which which is going to be transferred into power uh, mm. what it means is that it basically creates other opportunities down the line uh, and that's one of the things that they kind of struggle with in a sense is because the turnaround for napoleon happens so quickly that no one on the ground in in terms of the knights among the ranks of the, ranks of the knights are actually capable of responding to it in a, in a timely enough fashion so their their persistent um goal never never really changes like right up until the point at which allied troops are marching into france um so they're still on the same page of just you know getting the word out and trying to get everyone ne networked in together again primarily ar ar aristocrats but you know bearing in mind there's you know, a million or a million or more aristocrats. So it's, this mm. isn't a small group by any stretch. Right. Yeah. When um, you say they're the turnaround for Napoleon, do you mean his his downfall? Yes. Right, right, his, his initial. Napoleon. So yeah. not not the hundred days, but you know, is mm. the, the the reversal of fortunes of Napoleon is is not something that the knights are ultimately prepared for. Right. Right. So what it means is that they're not prepared to launch any kind of um, insurrection or up, or uprising because it had never been sort of built into their um, you know in, in, intended strategy at that stage. They were thinking maybe, as far as I can tell, they were, they were thinking that maybe that would be a possibility somewhere down the line, but they did not think that they were anywhere near ready for that, nor did they think that it would be something that they would be prepared for in a, in a, you know, in a short time span. So basically, they're forced to accept the fact that um, France is going to be invaded by the, uh, you know, liberated by the Allied powers, mm. and they are going to have a relatively minimal role in it, but they sort of scramble to do what they can. So in particular, whenever there are any armies that are coming uh, in, and uh, taking French towns, so in particular Bordeaux, under uh, well, taken by Wellington, mm. the people that come out and meet the troops are essentially Knights of the Faith or, or mobs that have been organized by the Knights of the Faith wearing, wearing uniform, basically. They have, uh, they have white cockades and they are, they're all basically you know, on, on the same page and they're all chanting for the return of the Bourbons. And so, in that sense, they can present the image of a of like a fait accompli, and they can actually negotiate. The, the local uh, sort of like uh, department leaders, re the regional leaders of the Knights of the Faith, can be the ones who are actually negotiating with the Allied armies and mm. uh, presenting themselves as the new governments of these various towns and cities. Right. As, so, just for people just who might not know, um, Napoleon, uh, sorry, Wellington, <laughs> um, essentially wins the Peninsular War boots all the, all the French marshals out of Spain, crosses the Pyrenees. And of course, then you're just immediately in France. You're just, you're invading Bonaparte's homeland sort of immediately. Uh, but also the Russians and the Prussians are closing in much further north from the east into sort of, well, into northern France up there, sort of at the, the same time, really, yeah. isn't it? It's pretty much exactly the same time. Um, like Napoleon reaps the whirlwind all at once there in uh, in 1814 isn't it um, yeah they make, they make an attempt to sort of uh, hold things off in the uh, in the east and the northeast but um yeah ultimately they're beat back and uh, napoleon is is forced into 
abdicating uh, unconditionally, more or less, uh, by his uh, by his marshals. Mm. I have heard, actually, just a quick quick note, quick side note. Have heard that read that Napoleon, despite having quite green troops under him at that point, um, performed some of uh, among his greatest feats in that sort of grand retreat there in eighteen fourteen. Uh, but no, nonetheless, he was just he was he was ne- it was it was an impossible task. Really, he could never have well, almost certainly never have actually um, you know become victorious that year. Um, so yeah, when he's first overthrown, I wanted to ask you actually, how quickly, how, you know, cause Louis, the, Louis the 18th comes back, the younger brother of the guillotined Louis the 16th. Yeah. Um, how, so, how much of a, a shoe in was he, you know, how was it just like, just a no brainer to everyone, Frenchman at the time, or was, or was there a lot of debate about it or did he just get in with, by the skin of his teeth? Cause the impression I've got the fairly relatively, uh, low resolution impression is that it was a little bit of a no brainer to a lot of the people in power. Cause I think the, the British and the, probably the Prussian and Russian and, um, and, uh, Austrian statesmen, it was up to them essentially, wasn't it? What was going to happen next? Correct me if I'm wrong. Not quite. So the interesting thing is that, and I was just about to get to this, so it, it sort of works well in a way because when the writing is on the wall, um, the turncoat extraordinaire uh, Talleyrand uh, basically flips sides and presents himself. He, you know, he gathers up another uh, a load of bureaucrats and um, and ministers and everything who are who are sort of willing to switch sides and join the uh, the, the you know, represent France basically as a, a provisional government. So they form. They form their own uh, government that is quite apart from all of the structures that have been developed by the actual royalists themselves. And they present themselves as the provisional government, which is going to be the one that is negotiating with uh, the Allied powers. And that's something that the Allies much much prefer um, for a couple of reasons, not least the fact that they don't want, they, they don't actually like the um, the Knights of the Faith. They don't, they don't like the Bourbons fundamentally um, because you know, for historic historic reasons, there are, are you know basically none of these powers are on particularly good terms with the Bourbons um, from a historic you know from a historic perspective. It, they'd always been the enemy, and so that's partly why in the early stages of, revo- of the revolution, basically everybody's quite happy to see the revolution as the uh, yeah the, the the good comeuppance, the just comeuppance for the uh, for the Bourbons who had been um, acting so so badly, and they were just sort of happy to see their their enemy getting knocked down a peg. But it also means that when you get groups coming along who are you know, fervently pro that establishment, um, they're not actually too keen on the idea of working with them. So they would rather work with uh, Talleyrand, who is much more of a, uh, well, from their perspective, moderate figure. Um, you know, some might say pragmatic, but some might say uh, you know, something else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but but essentially, these are the these are the figures who are actually doing the. Uh, the diplomatic wrangling at the at the national level, and so they are basically handed the opportunity to form the new government how they wish, and the uh, the knights are actually left out in the cold again, basically because although they have some kind of um, some regional influence that they've been able to develop, um, they're, the, they're, the, they're the de facto governors essentially of various various sections like Bordeaux, who where they've uh, risen up and basically been the the figures to actually negotiate on the ground with various commanders, and uh, sometimes I believe even open the gates. To the uh, to the armies, rather than you know forcing them to be besieged or whatever. Mm. Um, 
And so the the government that's actually formed is under Talleyrand instead. And Talleyrand, by his own like proclivities, would would rather have someone that's a little bit more of a liberal figure, much more moderate, a much more moderate royalist uh, who possibly even accepts some of the ideas of the revolution, such as a Louis the Louis the Eighteenth. But not only that, but the many of the figures in the Allies would actually rather that as well. Mm. So they just sort of you know negotiate amongst themselves. And so whether there really was any kind of question of some other figure other than Louis the Eighteenth ascending, I'm not entirely sure because my sense is that it would it would sort of undermine. It would undermine the monarchy itself if you were to just arbitrarily choose somebody who is not in, not next in the line of succession, basically, or or not necessarily have a monarchy at all. Um, I mean, who knows? I guess it, it really was all up in the air at, at that point. I, I can only imagine. Quick notes say are just about Talleyrand. If people don't know about him or anything, I I really dislike Talleyrand, obviously, but I really like to dislike him. Do you know what I mean? He's one of those people in history who is sort of, sort of, well, in my opinion, anyway, sort of thoroughly dislikable, but in sort of quite a charming, charismatic way. And he's sort of, sort of such a survivor. He was around during the revolution, all the way through the Napoleonic era, you know, right at the heart of government, absolutely at the heart of things. And then even after this, even at this point, he becomes, he's able to just switch sides again and people sort of somehow accept it, accept him. Um, he's sort of extremely clever and slippery and slimy, but, um, you know, not out and out, uh, you know, he's not, he's not evil. I don't, I don't think, I mean, he's quite corrupt, quite venal perhaps, but not, you know, he's not a monster. Um, anyway, I don't know how you feel about Talleyrand, but just a quick, quick note on him that, you know, what a pivotal figure, absolutely pivotal figure for France in this period. I just quite like to dislike him. What's yeah, your feeling I, about him? He, he, He's a worm. He's he's a bit of a snake, uh, but he's like you said. He's he's quite he's quite fun historical character. So uh, I think he's one of the cases where if you put almost anyone else in in his position, then you you get very different outcomes in history. Right. Yeah. Because one thing that France does have to thank him for is the fact that he was able to force his way in personally, not necessarily on behalf of France, um, but on his own sort of personal merits into the Congress of Vienna. So he is actually able to be there as a voice in favour of France uh, when all of the negotiations about what is going to happen to France are happening. So, you know, you can only imagine what would happen, uh, what, what would be the case later in, uh, say, World War One, if you'd had, uh, you know, like a more, a more active German, Austro-Hungarian or, or, you know, Ottoman representative who was, who was actually able to argue their case, um, potentially even just on their own personal merits. And that's basically what Talleyrand represents for France. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.